the book of Acts. We're in chapter 18 this morning. Continuing the journey that Paul began, originally intending to go into far-off places in Asia, in Bithynia, the Lord redirected him, did not allow him to go into those areas, but instead, through a vision that was given to him, led him in a direction westward into what is present-day Europe, across the Aegean Sea, finally to Philippi, his first ministry began there in Europe. There was no synagogue in Philippi, so he was able instead to meet with some women who had gathered together at the riverside, Jewish women, or God-fearing Gentile women, but just women. One of them was Lydia, a seller of purple, very wealthy woman. She was from the other side of the Aegean Sea in Troas. But she became the first convert to Christianity in the Western world. Of course, you know the story that there were problems in Philippi. Paul was put in jail along with Silas. They sang songs of praise to the Lord, and the Lord brought a great deliverance with an earthquake that shook the jail, shook the jailer as well. They were released. They were sent off to their next leg of their journey to Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, there were synagogues there, and many Jews and Gentiles believed. But there was opposition there as well. This time by the Jews who didn't want to accept what Paul had been saying with regard to the Messiah that they all were expecting, but they would not accept Jesus as that one that had been promised. And so... He was being threatened and he was forced to leave Thessalonica and he went down further south to Berea. And there in Berea, remember that he was able to teach again in the synagogue, but this time Luke tells us that the Bereans were more noble than those Jews who were in Thessalonica because they not only heard Paul, but they went back to their homes and looked up the scriptures to confirm what Paul had been saying. They searched the scriptures to make sure that he was telling them truth. And as a result of their having done so, they're remembered throughout the church age as very, very important Jewish believers. And we often reflect on that, that they had done there in Berea, by suggesting that we all should be as the Bereans. We should be Bereans in that respect. Search the Scriptures and know that what you are being told from the pulpits is truth. That's what you need to do. That's what we all need to do. There is no pastor who gets it 100% right. I can make no such claim. I can only tell you that whatever I say from the pulpit, you should be doing well if you go home and you check it out 
And if there's anything that you don't see that I have spoken from this pulpit, it would be very, very helpful to me and to you, to all of us, that a discussion would ensue and a determination of whether or not what I have said may or may not be wrong. I don't think it was, but it might be. And if you find that it is, tell me. There is no infallibility outside of Jesus Christ. The Pope is not infallible, neither is any pastor. But it's so important that that lesson be learned by all of us. Study to show yourselves approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth so that you won't be ashamed when you stand before Him in His coming. That's an important thing for all of us, not just for pastors, but for all of us. So Paul went from Berea, again, because Jews from Thessalonica came down to Berea, that 60 miles or so from Thessalonica to Berea, because they'd heard that Paul had been in Berea telling the Jews there about Christ our Lord. They stirred up the people again, and so Paul had to be rescued from Berea. They brought him down to the shore, and he took a ship, apparently, to Athens. We looked at his time in Athens last time. Many people think that it was a time of failure for Paul. I do not agree with that particular understanding, but there are some who believe that to be so. But we do know that there were some who were convinced by Paul, even in the Areopagus, where the judges of Athens, the intellectual philosophers of the day, wanted to hear what he had to say. They thought he was some kind of a babbler because he was preaching in the marketplace some new thing. Well, a new thing was that Jesus Christ came and died and was buried and then raised from the dead. He had been teaching that in Athens. And therefore, I believe because of that, although we're not told of others in Athens, besides the two or few others with them that were mentioned at the end of that time in Athens, that there must have been many converts as well. I'm convinced of that. Dionysius was the man that was an, an Areopagite. He was a judge, a very intellectual, very philosophical individual. He got converted, and along with another woman that was with him, and others with them, and we're told by Eusebius, who was an author, a Bishop in Alexandria, some 200 years later, that Dionysius of Athens was a bishop there. So the church must have been started. And it must have grown. But Paul did not stay there. There was no persecution. There was no opposition that's notable, other than the fact that some of the intellectuals thought he was nuts. But he goes on from there another 50 miles southward to the very southern area of what is now Greece. It was then known as Achaia. To a city named Corinth. And that's where we're going to be spending our time mostly here today. The city of Corinth was a very large city. Commercial center for the Roman Empire in Europe. It was very, very well known for its debauchery. They had all kinds of things kind of like Vegas would be considered today, that were attracting men and women to a life of sin. In the Roman culture of the day, the Corinthians were well known for their ways. As a matter of fact, 
it was commonly said that if anybody was living a sinful life, he was living as a Corinthian. During the times of the Roman plays that they would have, if they were to depict a Corinthian in their plays, they would depict him as a drunkard. So that gives you a picture of how terribly they were living their lives in that city. Because of the great merchandise that was passing through Corinth from the Adriatic Sea to the Aegean Sea and onward to Asia Minor, Corinth became a very, very popular place, a great stopping place for many people who wanted to take advantage of their lustful lives. There were, we're told, a temple of Aphrodite or Well, the Roman goddess's name was, I believe, Venus. Aphrodite was a Greek god, and there were prostitutes in the temple for Aphrodite, some 1,000 prostitutes available. Also, male prostitutes as well as female prostitutes. The place was a terrible place to live. But yet we find that Paul spent 18 months in Corinth, We'll see that as we move forward. So there was work to be done. Corinth is, again, in the southern part of the nation of now Greece. Still can go to Corinth today. There is a canal that crosses the five-mile stretch of land between the Adriatic Sea and the Aegean Sea at that point. It's called an isthmus. And in the Roman culture in the day of Paul, there was no canal available for them. But what they did was to take at least smaller ships and they would roll those ships on logs across that five mile distance from the one side on the west to the eastern side so that they can bring their merchandise into that particular Adriatic Sea, Aegean Sea rather, and and then move onward to Asia. The reason they did that was because in order for them to go around the cape that was there and is there today, it was a very treacherous journey and it took a long time for them to travel by boat around that southern portion of the land of Acacia. And so crossing over that isthmus, as difficult as it may have sounded, was the fastest and easiest way and safest way to do that. Larger ships would stop at that western port in Corinth. They would unload their cargo and carry their cargo across the isthmus to the other side and then load that cargo on another ship that could then sail on from there. So they had a system. And by the way, it wasn't until just after the Suez Canal was built in Egypt that they actually built a canal that crosses that very place from Corinth to Sancria. It's there today. It was very difficult because the rock was very hard and it was a large bedrock that they had to cut through, but they were able to do that. They didn't have the technology in the days of Paul, but they have done so in the last century. So that's where we are now in the story of Paul's second missionary journey. He's arrived at this place called Corinth. 
And it says in verse 1 of chapter 18, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. So Paul has arrived in Corinth, and he meets up with this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. They are in the Scriptures very often. Throughout the book of Acts, we'll see them over and over. We'll see them mentioned in some of Paul's letters, because they were very special to Paul. They helped him tremendously. In fact, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, at the end of his letter, he asks the Corinthians to greet Aquila and Priscilla. He talks about the fact that they risked their lives for his sake. Aquila and Priscilla, again, were from Rome. They were kicked out of Rome when Claudius said that all Jews had to leave the city. We talked about that a few times in our previous studies, but this is the historical record that that actually did take place. But they moved from Rome to Corinth at that time, and that's where Paul meets them. Later on, we'll find that they are going to travel with Paul to Ephesus. And they're going to stay in Ephesus for a while. And then we'll find them back in Corinth and then ultimately back in Rome. So they traveled a lot between those four different cities. And they're always mentioned by Paul in a very, very favorable way. We do not know if they were believers already when Paul got there to Corinth or whether he converted them to Christianity. But they were Jews at least he was, she may have been a Gentile married to a Jewish man. We don't know for certain. But we do know that they became believers. And we know that they were, according to what is written here, tent makers. And so was Paul. Interesting that Paul had a trade. He wasn't just a, an itinerant minister going from place to place, relying on the people that he visited to provide their, his every need. He did not do that. Instead, Paul worked during the day, labored hard at a profession, and then taught during other parts of the day and evening the Word of God. And on Saturdays, the Sabbath, in the synagogue when he could do so. But here he's identified himself with this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. And it says in verse 4, that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, there they are again coming after him, they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Well, here Paul is proclaiming the gospel record as he has done in previous cities in the synagogues and the Jews are not only coming against him, opposing him, but they're blaspheming. They're saying things against Christ that Jesus himself warned against. Blaspheming against the Holy Spirit was a sin that God will not forgive. These men were treading on very, very dangerous ground as they oppose 
Paul. And so his response to them, your blood be upon your own heads, he's saying, look, you're going to be responsible for the end result of what you are doing, what you are saying here. I am not guilty of this because I've told you the truth. If you're not willing to accept the truth, then that is on your heads, not on mine. Paul was very emphatic about the fact that they needed to correct themselves or they would suffer the consequences, eternal death. And then he said, from now on I go to the Gentiles. Now, he doesn't mean that everywhere he goes, he's just going to go to the Gentiles, because it was always Paul's desire to lead the people of God, the nation of the Jews, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you read Romans chapters 9 through 11, you'll find that that was Paul's greatest desire, that he could convince his own countrymen of the fact that Jesus is the Christ. But they had been blinded, a veil over their heads. There's coming a day, though, he said, the veil will be lifted. And they who are able to know at that particular time, at the end of days, there will be salvation for the Jews. But he cried unto the Lord often for their salvation. It was his desire that none of them should enter into a place of such depravity and such rejection that they would end up living their lives fighting against God. Note also that he tells us here in verse 5 that Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia. Remember, in Paul's journeys, he had left Thessalonica, went down to Berea, and Timothy and Silas were with him. Now, Timothy apparently did a lot of traveling back and forth between Thessalonica, Berea, and even Philippi to the north. But Silas and, Philipp, uh, Silas and Timothy came down from that area of Macedonia, probably from Berea. Together they came down finally to Corinth. Now Paul, when he was in Athens, had sent some of the people who were with him at that time back to Berea and, and asked them to tell Silas and Timothy to come down to meet him there. Well, they did not come right away. And when Paul went down to Corinth... Timothy and Silas had not yet met up with him. Now they have come. And it's, if you put the information that we have available through the Word of God together, we find that Timothy had been in Thessalonica, and the Thessalonian church had been asking a lot of questions about the things that Paul had taught them. And so Timothy has now come from there down to Berea, joined with Silas, and now they find Paul in Corinth. And Timothy is able then to tell Paul, things are going wonderfully well in Thessalonica. The church is growing. They're doing great things for the kingdom. And the word is spreading. And from the consequence of what Timothy has shared, Paul will eventually, in Corinth, write the first and second letters to the Thessalonians, those letters that we have. They're answers to the questions that Timothy brought with him that the Thessalonian church had asked. So Paul's very encouraged when they come. This is great news. And up until that time, he was by himself. And apparently that loneliness, that uncertainty of whether or not the people would do the same things there as had been done in other places where he had been. Remember, he was stoned, assumed to be dead in Lystra. He was put in prison more often than I think any one of us would ever, ever want to have to consider. He was beaten with rods on more than one occasion. And here in Corinth, all by himself, he has no support group there. 
just the Lord. But that's enough. Isn't it always enough to know that you have God with you? Even though everybody might have deserted you? There were times, in fact, even in the later days of Paul's ministry, he'll write to Timothy at the very end of his time on earth saying, everybody has left me except for Luke. It's a very lonely thing to be a man or woman in leadership in the church. Paul experienced that loneliness. I believe he was lonely there. Because we're seeing, as we read further, that although he was excited when Timothy and Silas did come, he tells us in verse 7, he departed from the synagogue where he had been teaching every Sabbath. He departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So he's been emboldened here, and he's not going to get very far from contact with the Jews, albeit from a different location, just next door. I love the way that the Lord opened up this opportunity for Paul to minister right next door to the synagogue. Though the people in the synagogue had refused to allow him to come anymore, all they had to do was listen as they're walking to the synagogue every Saturday morning, and they would hear Paul proclaiming the Word of God next door. Oh, that must have irritated many of them. But as a result of his doing that, look what takes place in chapter 18, verse 8. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Christians, many of the Corinthians, rather, hearing, believed and were baptized. Crispus was a ruler of the synagogue. It doesn't mean he was the chief rabbi. He was one who was given the responsibility of taking care of the building, the, the Torah, the scrolls. Everything had to be in place. He took care of the order of services. He was a very important individual within the synagogue of the Jewish faith. He got converted to Christ. So obviously... He couldn't remain in that position as ruler of the synagogue. That would not have been allowed. So he and his household, all of them, got saved. Remarkable. Crispus. And it tells us, look, at the end of verse 8, that many believed and were baptized. Now, baptized, baptism does not save anyone. Baptism is just an affirmation that I am saved. They got baptized because they got filled with the Holy Spirit, they believed in the forgiveness of their sins, and God has saved them, and they now are going to be publicly announcing, I believe, I identify with this Christ that has been proven to me to be the very Son of God. And I gladly go into the waters of baptism to demonstrate what He has done for me. When I am baptized, I am put under, I am immersed in identification with His death, buried, and then I'm raised up out of the water in identification with His resurrection, made alive. That's what baptism is for. Now, it's interesting to me, although there are some denominations, some other of the faiths in Christianity, who teach what's known as baptismal regeneration, that you are saved by being baptized. It does not fit the Word of God at all. 
There is no place in the Word of God that speaks of these things. In fact, Paul himself talked about the fact that when he was in Corinth and people were getting saved, he did not remember anyone except for Crispus and Gaius that he himself had personally baptized. Now, if the great evangelist Paul the Apostle thought it was not necessary that he should be involved in baptizing a lot of people, and he could have, and if baptism, baptismal regeneration were indeed the means by which we are saved, he would have. But he says, no, I didn't do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Chapter 2, excuse me. Verse 3. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. I want you to remember what he says here. Chapter 2, verse 3, 1 Corinthians. I was with you, speaking to the Corinthian church, in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He says in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, This is where I really wanted to go initially, but it's okay, we're there now. Verse 13 says, well, read from verse four, uh, from 12. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized, this is Paul speaking, I thank God that I baptize none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptize the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptize any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize. So there, Paul is saying, if you believe in baptismal regeneration, you need to look again. But he mentions a couple of things in that passage that we just looked at. He mentions in chapter 4 some things that we're going to be referring to momentarily. But he also says in chapter 1, verse 1, the name of another individual that we're going to run across a little bit later on in our study today. So I want you to take note of what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. He's introducing himself and he says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Paul's introducing his letter by himself as being an apostle and one that he is with him, that's associated with him while he's writing this letter, is a man named Sosthenes. As we will find out in the later reading, that Sosthenes became the ruler of that same synagogue that Crispus had been ruler of, and apparently Sosthenes gets saved also. We'll find that as we read further in verse 17 of this great chapter. So Paul is doing a work in Corinth, and he's 
convinced that the Spirit of God is moving him to teach those who are there in that city. But there is a sense of intimidation. There is a sense of fear, trepidation. There's a concern that Paul apparently has that he won't be able to continue because there's going to be opposition. And he has faced opposition before. And it's obviously something that is on his mind. How do we know that? Because of what we just read in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. That Paul said, I came to you in fear and in much troubling concern. Can you imagine that Paul, having gone through so much, would be fearful? Does that sound like a man of God to you? A man of faith? Why would Paul fear? Doesn't the Word of God say, don't be fearful, don't fret? Over and over again we find that to be the case, don't we? Well, Paul was fearful. So was Elijah. In the Old Testament Scriptures we see Elijah facing Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab the king of Israel and Jezebel his wife. And she was a believer in the gods of her own country. But she was not a Jew. She was from Sidon, Tyre and Sidon. They worshipped Baal. And she had many prophets of Baal that she had hired. They were all over the land. She had arranged for all kinds of Baal worship everywhere throughout the land. Every high place was dedicated to Baal. Ezekiel comes along. Oh, not Ezekiel. Did I say Ezekiel? Scratch that. Turn around and go back to the beginning. It was Elijah. Anyway, Elijah was a prophet of God. He spoke against those things. Remember, he was on the Mount Carmel. And there were 400, 450 of the prophets of Baal. And he challenged them. He said, build an altar to your God, and I'll build an altar to my God. They did that. And then he said, dig a ditch around your altar, and I'll dig a ditch around my altar. And they did that. And he said, pour water into that ditch, and all over the sacrifice. And he did that. And so he did also. And then he said, now call out to your God and see if he'll light the fire for you and burn that sacrifice. Well, those 400 worshippers of Baal began to dance around and call on their God, and their God didn't answer. And Elijah kind of kidded around with them a bit. Hey, maybe he's gone to the bathroom. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's asleep. They began to fervently pray to their God. They even cut themselves in an effort to call on their God. Their God did not answer. Then Elijah called on his God. And though the sacrifice was totally drenched, the water was running out of the trench that had been built around the altar, God consumed the sacrifice, the water, and the people of God who were watching this had to make a decision. If you're serving Baal, serve him. If you want to serve God, serve him. As a result of that moment, Elijah arranged for those prophets of Baal to be killed. He comes down from that mountain 
And he's on his way to Samaria where King Ahab and Jezebel are. And it begins to rain, a downpour. Do you know why that's significant? Because three and a half years prior to that, he made a prophecy that it will not rain until the time that the Lord appoints. And this was the time. So he saw all of these miracles. He saw the Lord consume the sacrifice, though it was drenched in water and everything was lapped up so quickly by the power of God. And he saw the fulfillment of that prophecy that he had made so many months, or now years before. And he's on his way to speak with Ahab and Jezebel. The problem is Jezebel threatens him and she wants to kill him. And he finds out about it. He ran (laughs) for his life. He was fearful. The man of God that had seen so many powerful things that God had done for him ran for his life because of a woman who threatened his life. I don't get it. Lord, how could that be? That's simple. He's human just like you and I. We're no different. Ezekiel, Elijah... (laughs) was no different. And neither was Ezekiel, but Elijah is who I'm talking about. He was no different. He's just a man. James tells us that. He says, he's like unto us, just like you and me. He's no great man, high above all the rest. He's just a man that God is willing to use. That's all that we are, men and women that God wants to use. So when trouble comes... When disappointments, disillusionment comes, when opposition comes, are we going to be in fear of our lives? We might be. But don't you know that Christ is with us still? And if that's the case, and He is still with us, He said Himself, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He said, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Paul writes, if God be for us, who can be against us? Paul knew that that was so. And yet Paul apparently was a man who became fearful. There was a time in one of his writings that he said, we even despaired of our very lives. So, when all these things had been taking place in Corinth, great victories, and yet Paul was apparently still very, very fearful of opposition. So in verse 9, we get to one of these wonderful verses of Scripture where Jesus Himself speaks comfort to His people. He says in verse 9, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, Paul, but speak and do not keep silent. Why? For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Notice what the Lord is telling Paul. He says, first of all, stop being fearful, Paul. Don't worry. Don't fret. Don't be alarmed. Don't be troubled. Trust in Him. People, that's what Jesus wants us to be doing as well in this present hour. Trust Him. Trust Him because He is trustworthy. Know that you are not alone. Know that you are in His presence if you put your trust in Him. Know that He will protect you. 
until the time comes when He wants to take you home. Whatever that may be, however it may happen, it is in His time, not ours. And we need to trust Him throughout every day of our lives, one day at a time, knowing that He is in control. And if you look around in the world today, you see a great deal of potential problems for all of us. The world hates us because they hated Him. The world hates the Jew because they brought the Savior into the world. Satan's behind it all. The people who are against the Jews today, the vast majority of them don't know why. They just have this, because they don't know Christ, this drive in them to come and attack everything that's good, everything that is wonderful, precious things that God has provided. They want nothing to do with God. Why? Because they want to remain in that darkness that they have enjoyed for so long. They need to have their eyes opened. There's hope for some of them. There's hope for perhaps many of them. That only comes through us if we shine the light. But that hope that we have, that hope, that joy that we have, that peace that we have cannot be taken away. Do not be afraid. Be willing to stand for Him. Do not keep silent. Paul's being instructed by the Lord and he says, this is the reason I am with you. Don't be fearful. This is the reason. He is with you. Don't be worried. This is the reason. Because no one will attack you to hurt you. Now that may not be necessarily for us. I can't guarantee that we will not be persecuted, even to the point of shedding blood. I can't guarantee that. But what I can guarantee is this. God's grace is sufficient for you, no matter what happens, no matter what they do to us. And as crazy as this world is getting, I would not be surprised if it begins sooner than later. Are you ready for that? Are you prepared to live for Him? Even if that does happen, you can know that He'll see you through it. He'll give you the grace to endure it. He's the same God yesterday and today and forever. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Oh, people of God, let that be something that you hold so dear to your heart every moment of your life here on this earth. He is with you. His Spirit is in you. He wants to give you good gifts. He wants to pour out blessings that you cannot contain. To give exceeding abundantly above all that you can ask or think. He wants the people of God to know that we're here for a reason. And that reason is to glorify Him. And if we are willing to be used by Him, if we don't tremble at the opposition, we'll turn the world upside down. At least in their eyes. So the result of this confirmation that Jesus has given to Paul, this affirmation that everything is going to work out just fine while you're there in Corinth, is found in verse 11. 
Paul continued there a year and six months, 18 months teaching the Word of God among them. He did not stop. The opposition came. It did not cause him to stumble or fall or to turn from that which God had called him to do. Oh, people of God, let that be so for all of us. Whatever it is that God has called us to do, whatever it is that God has called us to be, may we be faithful in it as Paul was and continue and not stop doing what we know to be God's will in our lives. Well, they did have some opposition, and a little bit of that is discussed in the next portion that we'll read now. In verse 12 it says, When Gallio, who was proconsul of Achaia, he was a Roman official, he was proconsul of Achaia, and the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. The judgment seat in Corinth still stands today in the ruins of the city. It is a place where they would judge the games that took place in Corinth. The Corinthian games were second only to the Olympic games in Rome. And it was a place where the judge would proclaim the victor or the loser of any particular event. It's there that they bring... Paul. And Galileo is the judge that has to be making a decision, if he's willing to do so, with regard to this accusation that they bring. So it says in verse 13, they said, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now they're not referring to the Roman law here, they're referring to the Levitical law. They had no basis upon which to say that he was saying things against the Roman law. That was not the case. But that was what they had brought to Galileo as their accusation. And it says in verse 14, And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, Hey, wait a minute. If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names of your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be judge of such matters. Gallio didn't even want to hear the case. Paul was about to speak. He was about to defend himself. He didn't need to. God took care of that. God does take care of things for us. We don't need to be defending ourselves. God does a much better job at it than we do. If I tried to defend myself, I would mess it up. I know I would. But if I let God defend me, I know everything will work out just exactly as it should. I want that to be the case for all of us. So the end result is, in verse 16, Gallio drove them from the judgment seat. Get out of here, you guys. This is crazy. I'm not interested in judging this. But, in verse 17, it says, Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. Remember I mentioned him earlier in a reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, where Sosthenes is with Paul there in Ephesus, writing to the Corinthian church. The Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So apparently, Sosthenes becomes a believer. Another ruler of the synagogue, no longer able to hold that position because he's now a convert of Jesus Christ. The story continues to finish Paul's journey on his second missionary endeavor. 
The verse 18 continues, it says, So Paul still remained a good while, and then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. So they had joined him in Corinth. They became followers of Christ, whether before or after he came, we're not told. But they're solid believers, and they join him on this rest of the journey from Achaia all the way across the Adriatic Sea to Ephesus. Remember, Paul wanted to go to Ephesus, but the Lord forbade him to do it. Now he's going there with Priscilla and Aquila. Take note of something else. It says in the latter part of verse 18, he had his hair cut at Sancria, for he had taken a vow. Why did Paul do that? That's very Jewish of Paul to do that. Any Jew that would take a vow, according to Numbers chapter 6, would cut their hair and let their hair grow and continue to keep that vow before the Lord until they brought the hair that would ultimately be cut to the altar, preferably in Jerusalem where the primary altar of God was, and there offer up that portion of hair that had grown as an offering to the Lord in completion of the vow. Now, we're not told why Paul did that, except that Paul does say, to the Jew, I became as a Jew. To the Gentile, I became as a Gentile. Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. That was his end goal. He was wanting to go to Jerusalem at the end of this journey. And apparently he made a vow to the Lord that must have had something to do with, if you allow me to get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be faithful to whatever it was that he made the vow for. So it's not that he was wrong because no Christian should do such a thing, but he was doing it for the sake of the Jews that he would encounter in Jerusalem. I believe that that was the primary reason that Paul made that vow and kept it. So he's on his way. And in verse 19 it says, He came to Ephesus and left them there, talking about Aquila and Priscilla. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Notice that Paul says, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I've got this vow that I've made. I want to complete that vow. I want to get to Jerusalem in time for the feast. We're not sure which of the feasts it was that he's mentioning. There were three feasts that Jews had to keep every year, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of uh, Pentecost, we call it, or Feast of Weeks, they would call it, and also the Feast of Atonement. Those were the three feasts that they had, if they could, go to Jerusalem to uh, worship the Lord. Every Jew needed to do that, every male Jew. So he wants to get there in time for the feast, so he leaves Ephesus, but he leaves Aquila and Priscilla behind in Ephesus. It tells us in verse 22 that when he landed at Caesarea and had gone up, and the wording is such that he's referring to going up to Jerusalem and then greeted the church there at Jerusalem, then he went down to Antioch. Now, 
kind of strange for us to picture that because Antioch is north of Jerusalem, so you'd almost say, why didn't they say, or why didn't Luke say they went, that he went up to Antioch and went down to Jerusalem from Caesarea? Primarily because Jerusalem is on a hill, Mount Moriah, and you would go up to Jerusalem. And wherever you go toward Jerusalem, you're going to go up to Jerusalem. Whenever you leave Jerusalem to go elsewhere, you go down to that particular place. So that's very biblical, very Jewish uh, for Luke to actually record it this way. It says in verse 23 that after he had spent some time there in Antioch, the second missionary journey is complete. He's back to his home base in Antioch, Assyria, but he's now turning around, not really sure exactly how much time has evolved, but he says in verse 23, after he spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So again, he's backtracking, going through the same general territory that he had gone on the second missionary journey, but now he's also going to be going down to Ephesus, where he had wanted to go on the second missionary journey. Now the door is open for him to go there. But before he does go there, Luke gives a parenthesis, and it's a very important one. Because it tells us something about an individual that we will meet again. And it also tells us a little bit about the work of Aquila and Priscilla with respect to this particular individual. Verse 24 says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So Apollos, a Jew, was well-versed in the Scriptures. He was a follower, apparently, of John the Baptist. He had heard about the baptism of John, the baptism of repentance. He had become, apparently, a disciple of John the Baptist. That is the implication here. But he was well-versed in the Scriptures, and he knew that John had pointed to the Messiah. He knew the Messiah was going to come, but he didn't know the Messiah had come. He didn't know all the story, but he believed all of the story. He expected all of that which was spoken of the Word in the Word to be fulfilled. He just didn't know all the details yet. But he was eloquent in speech, and he was a great orator. That comes into play if we look at the book of First Corinthians, which we have already read this morning, that portion of Scripture in chapter 1, where Paul says, Hey, some of you say, I am Paul. Some of you say, I am of Cephas. Some of you say, I am of Apollos. Some of you say, I am of Christ. There was division in the church. There shouldn't have been, but there was. Why? Because they were followers of men. Followers of individuals rather than followers of the Word of God. Rather than followers of Christ and not paying attention to any individual as their person of choice that they looked up to, that they put on a pedestal. Let that never be so in any of the churches of God, and I'm afraid that that's not quite so, but it should be that way, that there is no way for anyone to stand in a place like I am standing right here, that should be doing that if he or she is expecting some kind of accolade. Don't be patting me on the back for what I do. 
I'm just a servant of God. And so are you all. But they were glorifying men. And one of the things that attracted people to Paul was his great oratory skill. Remember in Corinth, they were a Grecian culture. And they really looked up to men and women who could tell a good story, who could say something new and exciting and a philosophical idea that is brand new and fresh and, and exciting and they present it in a way that's believable. Well, that's what they thought about when they thought of Paul, Apollos. When they thought of Paul, they said, well, yeah, he's all right, but he's not anything like Apollos was. He's not really eloquent speech. He doesn't really know the Greek language as well as Apollos does, and he doesn't use it as well as Apollos does. And what about Cephas? Well, he was a Jew. He wasn't trying to convince them in the way that Apollos did, but apparently he had some influence in many of them because he was one of the first apostles. It should never have happened, but it was happening in Corinth. And Apollos first learned about Christ at the hand of Aquila and Priscilla. So in verse 26 it tells us that she, or rather that he, began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They filled in the gaps. Apollos, you're speaking about the Messiah. He has come. It's Jesus. And let us show, us, let us show you how we know. They apparently gave him a lot of information that he had not known. And he believed everything that they gave him. He absorbed it. He took it all in. And he became a great teacher of the Word of God. But he's now in Ephesus with Aquila and Priscilla. And in verse 27 it tells us, When he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Aquila and Priscilla had done a good job in teaching him all that he needed to know. And he goes from Ephesus to Achaia, which implies that he went ultimately to Corinth. And that's where he was. That's where we find him in Paul's later writings. He's a great man of God. But he's not anything more than that. A man that God wants to use. It's not because Apollos was great in and of himself. He was great because God made him to be a great voice for himself. Paul was great, not because of anything that Paul was able to do, but because God put him in a place where God could use him to bring glory to his own name. When you read through the Scriptures, and we've looked at one today, Psalm 7, David, the king, proclaims himself to be a righteous man. He proclaims himself to be holy. But he knows he's not, because he later on says, no man is righteous. So what did he mean by that? That righteousness that he's proclaiming, that holiness that he's proclaiming, is not his own. It's given to him. And so it is for all of us. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. David knew that. But he also knew that a relationship with God, by faith, established him in a way with God that made it so that he was righteous in God's eyes. That's what faith does. That's what faith is all about. Paul knew that. 
Aquila and Priscilla knew that. All of Paul's other associates knew that. The church of God must also know that. I believe that you and I are aware of that as well. And because of that awareness, does it not then mean for you and for me that God is willing to use us? I believe that that is true. Yes, He's willing to use us. Why else would we, would be, we be here? If God didn't want to use us, then there's no need for us. But I believe we are here for a reason. Every one of us. We have a work to do. We have light to shine. We are to be salt. We're not to put a cover over the light. We need to let it shine. We can't let that salt lose its savor. You know what that means? In the day that it was written, when Jesus spoke those words, salt was used as a preservative to keep things from meat from rotting. They would pour salt upon the meat to preserve it. It was also used medicinally to put on a wound out to keep the wound from getting infected. But there comes a time that the salt is no longer useful for that. It's lost its savor. And they would store that unsavored salt in a storage place in the temple, for instance, where in the winter, if ice would form on the stairs, they would take that unsavory salt and all it was good for is to spread on the ground. And that's what Jesus said. It's no longer useful for its intended purpose. It's only going to be trod upon by men. Don't let that salt that you are to be become unsavory. It means you need to do something. You need to work at it. You need to study God's Word. You need to pray. You need to fellowship with one another. You need to come together as we all are now and minister to one another. Meet each other's needs. Pray for one another. Join hands with one another. Encourage one another. Be Bereans and study God's Word to know what God's will is for you. All of these things are true. All of these things are necessary. In these last days, my friends, we must be about the Lord's business. Paul, Apollos, Timothy, Silas, Luke, they all were. And for the most part, they remained faithful to the cause. Because Jesus had said, Don't be afraid, for I am with you. And so it is today for you and me.